for listening. Thank you for listening. To the Outstanding Ohioans. Outstanding Ohioans. To the Outstanding Ohioans. To the Outstanding Ohioans. Podcast. Podcast. Hosted by my daddy. Hosted by my daddy. Hi, thanks for tuning in today to the Outstanding Ohioans show. Uh, This is part one of my interview series with Nick Gillespie, who is editor-in-chief of Reason.com and Reason TV and Reason Magazine of the Reason Foundation. If you're like me, someone who feels like our current affairs of the United States, specifically the government, has gotten away from the vision of the Founding Fathers, if you feel like government debt and spending is astronomical, and doesn't seem like there's a point of return. If you're sick and tired of government handouts, both at the corporate and individual levels. If you're disturbed by our continuing military intervention around the world, restrictions of the government and with regulations on the marketplace, and government services that just seem to keep getting worse and costing more money, this is a great show for you to listen to. Mr. Gillespie has some great resources and great insights, and I'm really a believer in the work that the Reason Foundation is doing to help bring stories of Americans and educate Americans about the way our government's operating, the usurping of our liberties, taking away our freedoms and our economic restrict economic activities heavily restricted and being regulated and just having the discussion about that. So I'm really happy that I had the chance to interview Mr. Gillespie. He's a well-known figure nationally in political circles and lives right here in Oxford, Ohio, half the year. So thank you for turning in and hope you enjoy the show. Hello. Thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. This is episode 19 Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Nick Gillespie, who is the editor-in-chief of Reason.com and Reason TV. Nick, welcome. Thanks for having me, Rob. I became familiar with Nick and Reason TV a couple years ago, getting more immersed in the libertarian movement. Uh, I was really sparked personally by Ron Paul's public appearances nationally, and then coincidentally found out that Nick, who's a well-known icon in the libertarian community and media nationally, lives in Oxford, Ohio, and had the pleasure of sitting down with him before, and the pleasure of sitting down with you today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I I live in Oxford uh, half my time. I have two children here, and uh, so I'm here every other week, and then the other week I typically am in D.C. or New York or traveling. Okay. Nick, if if you could share for the audience your background, where you grew up, and Perhaps who were some of your role models in life? Who, what were some of the extracurriculars? Well, I was um, I'm 51. I was born in 1963 in Brooklyn, New York. And then a few years after that, before I have any memories of Brooklyn, uh, my parents moved to New Jersey. And I grew up in a town called Middletown, New Jersey, which is about 50 miles outside of uh, Manhattan, down along the water in, uh, in New Jersey. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I edit uh, Reason.com and Reason TV, which are the online the web uh, web and video platforms for Reason Magazine, which is a national magazine of politics, culture, and ideas that's been around since 1968. And uh, I edited it, uh, the print edition before I moved on to doing the online stuff. Um, but uh, I had actually started reading Reason, the nation's leading libertarian magazine in high school, partly because my brother, older brother, went away to college and found it in bookstores and started sending it back to me. And, uh, you know, so that's how I got involved with the magazine. And then I was going to grad school in Buffalo. I've got a doctorate in in English and American literature uh, from SUNY Buffalo. But I was uh, I was working on my dissertation then and um, I applied for a job that was listed in the pages of reason. And I got it. I worked as a journalist for a few years between graduating college and going back to grad school. And so I moved out to L.A., at that point, and uh, then kind of have worked my way part way back east uh, through Reason. And in terms of kind of role models and stuff, you know, Reason's, Reason is a libertarian magazine, a small L libertarian. Our, our 
slogan is free minds and free markets, uh, which kind of means that civil liberties and economic liberties and political liberties, these are all mixed together. You can't have one without the others. Um, and, um, you know, we're, we're pretty much, uh, you know, we're for more choice in everything, whether it's education, whether it's reproductive rights, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, what kind of business you want to run, what kind of drugs you want to take, what kind of food you want to eat, you know, just more choice in general is better, less control, more choice. Uh, and one of my heroes growing up, uh, at least in a kind of political uh, landscape, was Milton Friedman, who's another uh, famous son of New Jersey, uh, certainly a lot more famous than I am, but uh, and who also went to Rutgers University, which is where I went to as an undergrad. And um, he, uh, between reading Reason and discovering his book, Free to Choose, that he co-wrote with his wife, Rose Friedman, um, uh, which was kind of a libertarian exploration of all sorts of public policy issues. It was a big TV show on PBS, uh, and there was a best-selling book that was um, that he wrote along with that I think came out in the late seventies or early eighties, and that's uh, you know that was a big part of uh, of who I became. Reading Reason and reading Free to Choose and kind of getting immersed in that. But more broadly, uh, growing up, I was much more interested in sports and music. And I worked as a journalist for a while at, uh, at a movie magazine, uh, a bunch of movie magazines, music magazines. I was uh, very interested in kind of new wave and neo-punk music at the time. And I liked people, uh, writers especially. I wanted to be a writer, a novelist. And I liked people like Jack Kerouac and I liked people like Herman Hess. And I liked people who were kind of searching and seeking uh, in, in, their, um, in their writing and, and, and in their ramblings. I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan. And, uh, you know, he somehow fits into all of that, too, and Albert Camus. Uh, so it was kind of a mixture of all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I know we had we had this conversation previously. Growing up, was your household a political one? Not at all, really. Uh, my parents uh, were both born in the 1920s, and they were part of you know, what's now called the greatest generation. Um, and, uh, you know, my uh, they, they were the children of immigrants. My father's parents were from Ireland. My mother's parents were from Italy. My mother didn't speak English until she went to grammar school. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my grand, my Italian grandparents never spoke English, but they were among the absolute greatest, most uh, exemplary Americans I've ever met. I mean, these were people who uh, came to America, and actually it's true of my Irish grandparents as well. They all came to America looking for economic freedom and economic opportunity. And, uh, you know, they worked hard and they played by the rules and they did they did pretty well despite – facing in the 20s, you know, at first, uh, I mean, they came, I guess, in the teens, but facing certain forms of, uh, of racism and discrimination that was nothing at all like what uh, Native Americans or blacks faced, but was substantial. And then going through the uh, Depression, uh, my father fought in World War II. He was in the Normandy campaign, um, you know, and then came out of, uh, came out of World War II, uh, as did my mother, you know, the Depression and World War II, and really participated broadly in the, um, in the prosperity that came after World War II. Uh, but neither of them was particularly political. My father uh, had become a, uh, a kind of Harry Truman Democrat, largely, uh, he told me once towards the end of his life, uh, you know, that it was because when Truman ended World War II cataclysmically, and I think, you know, it's, it's worth debating, uh, whether or not it was the the only way or the best way to end World War II, but by dropping the bomb on Japan, mm-hmm. uh, he, you know, my father was like, okay, I'm definitely in with the Democrats because he was, he had, uh, you know, fought in the five major campaigns in Western Europe, mm-hmm. uh, starting with Normandy, going through to the Germany campaign, and then he was waiting to be uh, mobilized into the invasion wow. of Japan, which... The way that they talked about it then, you know, it was pretty much they were expecting something like a million casualties. So, mm-hmm. you know, the guys who were lucky enough to have made it through Europe and then were looking forward to the invasion of Japan, they figured this, you know, their number was up this mm-hmm. time. Wow. Similar to you, you're, you're a second-generation American. Right. I'm, I'm third. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're pretty close in that regard. What, what were some of the favorite traditions or stories you heard from? about your grandparents or from your grandparents? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because none of them were nostalgic about the old country, which Mm -hmm. is important. And, you know, it's uh, for people who have read uh, Angela's Ashes, the uh, Frank uh, McCord uh, memoir of his mother, 
who was an Irish immigrant to America and then went, uh, moved back to Ireland, which was actually quite common that for in, in the great kind of immigration period between about 1880 and 1920 uh, of people from Europe, almost, you know, uh, depending on the, uh, the estimates, anywhere from 25% to 40% of those people actually moved back to their mm-hmm. old countries. My grandparents were not at all of that group. They really... Uh, and I, I knew three of four. One of them died before I was born. Um, but uh, they were not nostalgic at all about Ireland, you know, rural Ireland or rural Italy. They escaped those places mm-hmm. because they knew that their lives did not matter there and that their economic opportunities were extremely limited. And with economic uh, limitations also came a lot of political ones. I mean, you know, the Irish, uh, my my, uh, uh, my Irish uh, grandparents were from uh, Western and they were from the Republic of Ireland, uh, which only gained independence uh, really after they moved. Uh, mm-hmm. They were occupied by the British, and there was a lot of political repression as well as economic privation. In Italy, Italy only became its own country in any meaningful sense of the word in the in the 19th century. My grandparents were from southern Italy. They were from the same village. They had an arranged marriage that was consummated in, in the United States of all places. But they knew that nobody cared about them and that the Italian government only wanted, you know, they wanted men who would farm and go to war whenever the Italian government or European governments decided it was good enough and they wanted women who would go along with whatever was necessary for the motherland. So that was actually a huge part of me growing up, of of my childhood, was both the immigrant experience of, you know, what it's like to, to start, you know, to light out for new territory and find a new place where you had options. And that was hard. Um, but also no nostalgia for, you know, for the old world order. They, you know, my, my grandparents came from what Donald Rumsfeld once uh, dismissed as old Europe. And, he, you know, and they, they would totally have agreed with that. This, these were places where they were the last remnants of people who were peasants, who were serfs, you know, who belonged to the land and to whoever owned the land. And you didn't have much uh, in the way of, of self-control of your own destiny. And as tough as it was for them in America, again, because of, uh, you know, they didn't speak the language or they came from disfavored minority groups, whether it was being Catholic or being Irish or Italian. Uh, but then, you know, the Depression, they were still through and through. They were like, no, this is a better place for us because they had some small measure of the ability to control their own destiny. And for me, that was, you know, as important as any kind of story, a general story that was told um, or traditions. Although, you know, there was Larded with that, the uh, you know I'm I'm very interested in immigration policy, and also in the creation of kind of ethnic identity and as well as national identity. And you know my grandparents and my parents certainly very much participated in this kind of uh, melting pot uh, idea of America, where uh, you know what goes, you know a lot of different things come in to the melting pot, and you come out American, but that doesn't mean that you surrender your individuality or even your collective identity of being Irish or Italian. Mm-hmm. And this was one of the great benefits of growing up in a place uh, in the in the New York metro area, and that is that everybody I knew growing up had at least one grandparent who did not speak English at all. Mm-hmm. And you were both, you know, somewhat proud of that, at times maybe ashamed that, you know, your your house smelled weird to other people because of what you were cooking. Um, but it was it was it was a source of power and it was also a source of leveling among people in you know one of the things that's great about the New York area is that everybody is hyphenated and you don't it, it doesn't mean that you get to lord it over somebody else but it's it does mean like everybody is aware that we come from somewhere and that we're not really what we want to be that we're in the process of building our identity and moving towards a goal mm-hmm. and that's a it's it's genuinely inclusive because uh, you know suddenly you know I'm Irish American and Italian American and then I meet a Polish American or an African American or a, Lat- a Mexican American and you realize we're all part of the same kind of mix mm-hmm. and you want to see what happens next. I uh, you know I can remember in Jersey City where I had a bunch of friends after I graduated college in the mid '80s and you know suddenly you were seeing things like kosher Chinese restaurants or Cuban Chinese restaurants, like new fusions that you just hadn't anticipated before. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the great strengths of the country, I think, mm-hmm. is that people can come here and then you mix it up and you come out with something nobody could have planned before. But it's kind of interesting and cool. And if it works, it sticks around and it grows. If it doesn't, you know, it just kind of disappears. 
<clears throat> as you were talking, I I felt a lot of emotion yeah. stirring within me because I, my dad's grandmother, my great grandmother, had the great fortune. She lived to be a hundred. Yeah, uh, from the Ukraine, mm-hmm. uh, moved to the Cleveland area. She was sixteen years old, arranged marriage. Yeah, got married in the United States. Very similar to what yeah. you, you talked about, and and I think a point that you talked about was there. People like us had so much admiration. Gosh, that took a tremendous amount of courage to come to the United States, give up everything you knew to do that. And the response would be, this was our dream. This was an opportunity. The the chance to build, I mean, they built their own house in in their Cleveland Lakewood community. Just the the chance to to have a career. And uh, and my my mom's side, my, my grandfather, Italian, same. Yeah. So they had, they they started a taxi company in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and, and were mechanics, and ran a bus company as part of that. And it's it's interesting. We we felt we feel like there's there was courage in that, and, and I, I think that's certainly true. But the, that the folks that did that didn't view it that way. It was mm-hmm. this was an opportunity. This was yeah. our chance to make a better future for ourselves and our children and in a better lives. Yeah. Uh, you know, my uh, Italian grandfather uh, was, uh, you know, in, in his instance, he came over to the U S and he, he had like a lot of Italians and, they, you know, and people in all sorts of countries still do this. He had gone a couple of times before he stayed in the U S he had gone to Argentina with a couple of his brothers and you would work for a while and then come back, send money back, go someplace else. He had been to, the U.S. a couple of times on short-term kind of labor contracts. But the the time that he came to stay, uh, the story, and I, I didn't learn about this until the day of my uh, mother's funeral, actually. My older uh, uh, uncle, my namesake, uh, uh, Uncle Nick, told me, you know, he showed up as a kid. He was still under 20 at Ellis Island, and there used to be a railhead at Ellis Island, like off of the off of the island where, you know, the immigrants who, who made it through the health check, and that was basically it, you know, mm-hmm. which is also something worth thinking about is that, you know, what was great about America then in a way was that even people who hated immigrants didn't think for a long time that, oh, well, we can keep them out. Or we have the right to keep them out. It's mm-hmm. like, no, even if we dislike them, they have every right to be here just as our ancestors did. And it's a shame that I don't think we think that way anymore. And it's a mm-hmm. real problem for me. But so this Nicola Guido, my my grandfather, you know, is maybe 17, 18, 19, something like that, doesn't speak any English. He was told to wait for a guy who was going to come and pick him up. The guy never shows up, so he's just standing there. And he was, you know, when I knew him, he was like five feet tall. Uh, so this little shrimpy Italian kid is just sitting there with all his possessions in the world. Finally, a guy comes, puts him in a car, drives him somewhere into eastern Pennsylvania. And to this date, nobody in the family knows exactly where it was. And for the next 18 months, he sledged rock, you know, with a, with a chisel and a hammer with a bunch of other Italians in a rock quarry somewhere in eastern Pennsylvania. You know, they didn't tell you where you were because if you knew the name of the town you were near, you might be able to escape, essentially. It was captive labor. He was still able to save some money and send some money home. Then he finally got a message from my uh, mother, my grandmother's family, you know, that she was in Waterbury, Connecticut, and he could go there, and then they got married. But this was brutal labor. Uh, you know, where you were like sledging rock by hand, you would fall asleep and you would be so tired that you would uh, piss yourself and soil your sheets because you couldn't get up. Then the company would charge you extra for, you know, an extra set of sheets. And and it was still better than what they had, you know, the Mm -hmm. options that they had. And, uh, you know, that's worth thinking about. And I think about it a lot in a a contemporary context because, you know, when you think most most immigrants today coming into America, whether legal or illegal, are coming from Mexico, a majority, about 55 percent. And like these people now are, you know, they're doing they're walking across desert to get here and they're not walking, you know, all of the data. I mean, there's a lot of hysteria about this, but all of the actual facts show that, you know, immigrants 
who come here, you know, are less likely to, co to commit crimes. They're less likely to be on welfare. They come here to work, mm -hmm. um, you know, and they stop coming here to work when they can have better jobs in their home country, which happened in Mexico as, a, as the economy there was better than here. Mexican net immigration into America stopped. And, you know, we need to figure out a way to welcome people who want to come here to start a new life and a better life. Overwhelmingly, they do not come here to loaf around or to get welfare benefits. They come here because because it gives them the option or the opportunity to, to build a life for themselves and their families and whatnot. And I think the more that we can do that, uh, you know, the better we'll be. And when you look at parts of the country that are poor or are down on their heels, there isn't a, a, there isn't a case where those aren't also the places that don't have migrants coming, whether from within the U.S. or from outside the U.S. And that's, you know, that's one of the great geniuses of America is that it has always had a well, if not a welcome mat, at least it's like, okay, yeah, we'll let you in and make your place here. And we all benefit from that. And mm -hmm. I think for me, you know, now that you think about it, like the, the immigrant experience, it's something my kids don't really understand. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something I, I only understand second or third hand, right. but it's really important because it says something when people are willing to say, I'm leaving this behind to come to your country. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, to me, it's one of the reasons why I'm a libertarian. I want government to be limited and I want opportunity to be maximized. And that, you know, one of the ways you know you're doing the right thing is when immigrants are coming here. Uh, and one of the things a lot of people who are anti-immigrant, you know, they, oh, you know, just we don't need you anymore. That's exactly when, you know, you know your country is hitting the skids. Is when mm -hmm. people don't want to come here anymore, mm -hmm. it means that you're, you know, we're, we're in deep, deep trouble. Exactly right. Yeah. You know, if we could just talk about this a little bit more, something that I think we've also lost is the neighborhood experience. You had these ethnic neighborhoods where yeah. it was really, it was really families looked out for each other right. and they raised each other's kids yeah. and... And you grew up together, and, and and you had a real sense of community, and in a lot of ways, that's that's really been lost. I, well, I you know I I'll agree with you in in certain ways, uh, and and disagree or challenge that on mm -hmm. a, in a couple of others. I think there's no question. Like when I think about the the neighborhood I grew up in in New Jersey, you know, which uh, was probably you know again it was a New York suburb broadly speaking. And uh, we, you know, it was the baby boom, the tail end of the baby boom, and we had, it was very stable. Like, people had moved there, they had their families there, everybody knew each other. It was a Catholic conclave in, a, in an area or in a country that's mostly Protestant, mm -hmm. um, and that was a source of solidarity. There, you can overplay kind of ethnic or even geographical so, uh, solidarity a bit because there's a dark side to that, too, mm -hmm. and I can remember my father talking about he was born in, in Manhattan and grew up there and in Brooklyn. And if you were an Irish kid wandering into the Italian neighborhood or the black neighborhood or the Jewish neighborhood, you'd get beaten up and, mm -hmm. and other sure. sorts. So there's, there's sure. a darkness to sure. um, ethnic identity or any kind of fixed identity. But also you're right that there was a community and, and you know, people had a shared sense of what it was to be American and also what they had come through, uh, which is not all good either. I mean, like people, my parents' generation, you know, they had they had been immigrants together. They had been through the Depression together. They had been through World War II together. These are horrible things that do cause, you know, they create a common sense of identity and also a common set of hopes for the future. And mm -hmm. luckily for all of the things that are bad in the world that I grew up in and I think that you grew up in, we haven't had those types of, mm -hmm. you know, truly universally cataclysmic events that mm -hmm. really test people and pull people together. And I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why maybe neighborhoods aren't quite the same as they used to be. And there's a mm -hmm. loss there. It's good when you live in a place, you know, kind of like cheers without the alcoholism where everybody mm -hmm. knows your name. Mm -hmm. By the same token, one thing that I'm extremely excited about now over the past 20 years, certainly, is that, you know, the rise of kind of the internet and digital culture, it allows us to create a you know, to create new communities mm. and they don't replace the old physical ones, but they supplement them. And so mm -hmm. that, you know, now you can have a Facebook group and it's, you know, you can't go to a Facebook group and ask, you know, Hey, can I borrow a cup of sugar? Like you can a neighbor mm -hmm. or watch my house while I'm gone. But you know, you, you get, you can connect with people in a way that really ends the type of social isolation that I think a lot of 
minority groups felt, not just racial and ethnic minorities, but if you're gay, if you're if you're libertarian, if you are interested in a series of in a type of culture, you know, it could be radio plays, it could be manga, it could be uh, you know uh, novels by Saul Bellow, you name it, you know, just things where. You, if you were growing up in a town like Oxford, Ohio, you know, with what maybe ten thousand year-round residents, you would just be isolated from people who thought like you were, or or were interesting, or you might, you know, because you you have zits, you might you you wouldn't be able to talk to people, and and you can, so that, you know, certain things have given way, and there are real losses there, and then there are also real gains mm-hmm. through kind of virtual culture and cyber culture and and the ability to communicate and to find people who think like you or disagree with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. So going back to you get your job at Reason, Mm -hmm. at what point did it go from being just a job to Sounds like it's really become a cause for you and yeah, a passion. Yeah, I, you know, I, uh, and I have to, uh, you know, work is always frustrating no matter what kind of job you're doing and stuff. And every time I start getting wound up about, you know, how much I can't stand it anymore, I, I check, you know, I check myself and I realize, okay, I'm also doing something that I really care about and really believe in. I, again, as a small L libertarian, um, you know, I I had started defining myself by the, as that, but you know, sometime in high school or college, and then it, it was kind of apart from my profession. I was again, I was working, uh, you know, in music and movie magazines and TV magazines, and even I edited a teen magazine, you know, for a while. I ghost wrote a uh, an advice column for Alyssa Milano. You know, this was, you know, so there I was. I was a libertarian in my beliefs. I thought that, you know, censorship was bad. I thought free expression was good. I'm a First Amendment absolutist. I thought the drug war was stupid, and I thought people who were anti-immigrant were misguided. I thought economic freedom, you know, generally, you know, is much, much better and, you know, than, than you know, command and control economies. Um, but it was not really something relevant in my work, except to the degree that uh, music in particular and, and uh, you know, and free expression go hand in hand. Uh, but then as I was working towards my dissertation and I was hoping, you know, I was expecting to be a, a college professor in an English department or American studies department. And, you know, I was married uh, to the mother of my children at the time. And uh, we realized it was going to be hard to find jobs together. And this reason opportunity came up and I was like, hell, I've been, this is the magazine, you know, more than any magazine with the possible exception of Mad or Sports Illustrated had, you know, built, made me the person I was. I was like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a shot. And I applied for the job and got it. And, and, you know, and then once being in that, I realized, and one of the reasons why the editor uh, who hired me hired me was because I was coming at a lot of issues and ideas from a more kind of cultural or literary angle than a traditional economics or public planning one or public policy one, which is what a lot of uh, reason stories had been like. So this was an opportunity for me to kind of start thinking about, okay, well, what's a libertarian understanding of culture? What's a libertarian understanding of how innovation and technology doesn't just allow us to become wealthier, to get more goods and services with less inputs, but how does it change the way we talk about culture? How does it change the way that we produce things and consume things, you know, Mm -hmm. like art, music, video, and other forms of creative expression? So it's, you know, it's worked out pretty well for me, if not for the people who read my stuff. (laughs) Well, it certainly has been good for them, Mm -hmm. too. So... Your mo- the motto of reason is free markets, free minds. Free minds and free markets. I'm yes. sorry, free yeah. minds, free markets. So explain that. Yeah, you know, what it, what it comes down to is the idea that, um, you know, you, you know there, broadly speaking, there are a couple of ways that you can organize society. And one is, you know, you can kind of let people do what they're going to do um, and, you know, and try and keep the peace as, you know, as, as people start doing more things. Or you can say, okay, you know what, we're going to start with a, with an idea of control, that, you know, there are certain good things and bad things, and we're going to make sure that people don't do the bad things. Libertarianism and certainly reason belong to that former camp of where, you know, let's start with the idea that you and I both have certain kind of generally speaking, inherent rights. You know, you have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as you define it. I have an equal right to that. And what the idea of politics or, or government is, is to create a structure by which we can go about doing what we want with a minimum of conflict. Uh, and you don't have a right 
you know, this is the idea that you have your right to swing your fist ends at my nose and vice versa. And so instead of talking about, okay, we know what's right and we're going to move the pieces on the board around to, to, you know, comport with my vision of the good society, I'm going to do my thing and I'm going to try to persuade you that my way of living, my way of doing business, my way of uh, creating a book or a novel or a company, I'm going to try and convince you of that through persuasion and through um, example rather than by force to say, no, you know what? I mean, you, you talked about your grandparents uh, on one side uh, form on one side of your family forming a taxi company. You know, an example of this is in, from the contemporary world is, you know, you have taxi commissions in most cities, most urban cities where they, you know, a bunch of people who also have, you know, who are politicians and people who represent the existing taxi companies say, you know what, we think in a city this size that there should be 100 taxis, and that's all we're going to license. And if you are caught driving a taxi around, driving people from here to there for pay, and you don't have one of those slips of paper that's, you know, a permission slip mm -hmm. from the government saying you're okay to drive, we're going to give you fines, and eventually, if you keep doing it, we'll put you in jail. That's, that's the model that is in virtually every city right. that has taxis. Uh, another way of thinking about it is something like Uber or Lyft or Sidecar, these ride-sharing companies that use smartphones and whatnot, where they say, screw it. And like Uber has done this and Lyft has done this and Sidecar has done this in, in pretty demonstrable ways where they say, you know what, there's a lot of people out there who need rides from one place to another. We're going to create a service, uh, and everything in it is there. You know, you know what you're going to pay. You, uh, you know, you get to rate your driver and the driver even gets to rate you. We're not going to ask permission of anybody about this because what will happen is that if, there, if this service is providing something that people want and are willing to pay for at the, the rate we're willing to charge, we have a business here. And if we don't, it'll disappear. And, you know, and you can see in city after city, Uber is being attacked and Lyft is being attacked because people are saying you can't do that. You know, and they're saying, like, why not? We're, you know, we're not hurting anybody. And if we do hurt somebody, our insurance is going to cover it. And we're going to make damn sure that our drivers aren't drunks and that they don't have suspended licenses, et cetera. And in a nutshell, that's kind of, you know, that's the world reason wants to live in, a world of what some people call permissionless innovation. And it's not just about business. It's also about you know, how you build something. It's about how you live your life. It's like, what gender? Do you, do you want to live in this kind of relationship or that kind of relationship? As long as you're not going out of your way to hurt me or keep me from doing my thing, let's run a lot of what the and philosopher John Stuart Mill called experiments in living. And, you know, the better experiments, the ones that pan out will flourish, and the ones that don't work out so well, you know, they'll disappear. That's that's kind of where free minds and free markets, the broad view, worldview that it's coming out of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In a lot of your online pieces, Drew Carey's mentioned. Mm -hmm. as a great son of Cleveland. Right. Yeah. What, and, what's his role with Okay. Well, uh, it's interesting. Drew Carey is a uh, – Reason is published by a nonprofit uh, called the Reason Foundation, which is at reason.org. It's a what's called a 501c3 foundation, so it's an educational research organization. We don't uh, – you know, we're the small L libertarians. We don't endorse particular pieces of legislation or particular candidates. We're not allowed to. People who give us money get a tax break for their donations. We have a board of trustees, which is, I don't know, you know, 15 or 20 people, uh, you know, that not only support us monetarily, but then we meet with them a couple times a year and tell them what we're doing and we get their input and stuff like that, you know. And Drew is one of those people. Uh, it's an interesting story. Reason is technically headquartered in Los Angeles um, and uh, about you know, maybe 18, almost 20 years ago, uh, we used to do a thing in our L.A. offices, which were called Evenings with the Ed Realize, you know, and this is something, you know, in, in kind of 1960s Cleveland, soccer was the province of, you know, people with unpronounceable last names who were immigrants from all over the world. And uh, but he, and so he wasn't that into it. He was more of a football guy and a baseball guy. And then he, you know, he, he got into soccer and he actually did a documentary mm -hmm. about the World Cup. And he's a part owner of the Seattle Sounders. But he took a, a boot camp in how to do video journalism 
and he came to reason and he said, you know, you guys have been doing great work in your print magazine and your website. You know, you tell great policy stories and stuff. Look, for because of technology, technological innovation and whatnot, video has become cheap enough to be in the hands of everybody. And he said, let's do Reason TV and basically create a video platform where we would do online short form documentaries about issues. And for the first year or so of that enterprise, he was the, the, the host and the narrator and kind of the leading light behind that. So Reason TV, which now we produce you know, about 200 plus videos a year that are online at our, our YouTube channel, it's YouTube uh, dot com forward slash reason tv or at reason.com you can get all of our stuff but and we get a million views a month on youtube uh, Five hundred thousand of those are kids between the ages of 18 to 34 mm-hmm. uh, and we all owe all of that that the idea and the execution in its early stages the drew of saying you know uh you know let's let's make a bunch of videos and he did a first couple the one of the first videos he did was a great piece about medical marijuana in California, and this was in the uh, early two thousand or in the mid two thousands, um, and how the federal government was raiding medical marijuana dispensaries that were fully in compliance with state law, and um, you know that was that was a powerful piece that came out just as he was named host of The Price Is Right, so that became a story like look at who's replacing Bob Barker, a guy who believes that medical marijuana is a legitimate thing and, you know, that the Fed should lay off. He did an early video that was great and still remains one of my favorite about, um, uh, you know, markets for organs, uh, for human organs. We have this ongoing shortage of organs, of things like kidneys and, and corneas and hearts and livers and you name it. And he laid out in a, in a great documentary about like, okay, Everybody says, you know, we need more organs. And the one thing that nobody will do is actually compensate the donor. You know, the patient, the recipient gets something out of it. They get a new heart or a new kidney or a new liver. The doctor gets paid. The hospital gets paid. Everybody gets paid except the person who is actually, you know, giving the organ itself. And that, you know, and there are laws against compensating them. And he works through the logic of that. It it explains why there's a shortage. Because you don't get, you know, it, there, why there's a shortage and how you can regulate it in such a way or self-regulate it so that nobody's being taken advantage of. But we actually kick up the number of kidneys and organs and, and relieve a huge amount of human suffering. So he's been a great inspiration to us. Uh, and it's great to have him as a reader. Mm-hmm. Something I'm really impressed with, Nick, both in the on the website, the videos is... I love the stories that you bring, and, I, and I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna bring one up here in, in a moment, and just the amount of seems like research that goes into it, the viewpoints, the the scholar, the scholarly viewpoints. One of your stories that just resurfaced, I, I know you've been covering it for the last couple of years, is the California raisin farmers. Right. Yeah. To, so the audience can get a, a picture of this. How do you get hold of a story? How does how mm-hmm. how would a story like that come to you? And then what how do you what resources do you use both with labor technology yeah. to to produce a piece like that? Well, thank you. Uh, that the California raisin story, which is about a raisin farmer uh, essentially, is uh, you know who fell into you know there's a vast regulatory framework where the guy couldn't even or the the couple couldn't even sell their raisins. They couldn't even give them away. I mean, and this, what we like about this story, which is an outrage, and, it, and it's multiplied and replicated throughout all aspects of the economy, is that, um, you know, what's going on when government bureaucrats, whether at the state level or the local level or the federal level, start telling people, okay, well, you can't do this or you can't do that. And it happens all of the time in all sorts of ways. This you know, there are, uh, when you look at something like the United States Department of Agriculture or the Food and Drug Administration, whatnot, the stories that were normally told are that, you know, if not for these people, we would all be eating rotten rotten chicken, salmonella-stricken eggs. Uh, you know, we'd be uh, taking in poison under the guise of medicine. And in reality, none of that is the case. I mean, the, you know, markets... Markets among people who are voluntarily buying and selling goods tend to regulate themselves, not Mm -hmm. perfectly, but we know that the government doesn't regulate things perfectly. But all kinds of structures come up 
to give information to consumers and to make sure that, you know, that sellers are not, you know, no, no seller, uh, you know, wants to kill his, his customers. That's right. like, a, not a good idea, you know, and, 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 you know, and this story in particular, and it's online, you can find it at reason.com. If you type in raisin farmers is a good example of that, where you think there's a free market in, you know, in buying and selling and raising and producing crops, things like grapes and raisins. And in fact, there's this vast uh, kind of archipelago of regulatory bodies that are covering stuff in this without going into the details too much. You know, it's about a, a, about a, a, a family farmer who cannot get rid of his product no matter what, you know, because there are rules that say, no, we've got enough raisins or we've got enough nuts or we've got enough this. And it's, it's an outrage, you know, it's really an outrage and it comes back up and again. Now, the way that we find these stories is, you know, I've got at Reason TV, there's like about 10, uh, 10 or a dozen producers um, who, you know, and most of them do all sorts of stuff. Like they're constantly looking for stories that kind of exemplify a small L libertarian, you know, freedom ethos. So what we look for are people who are doing interesting stuff with freedom and, uh, you know, and then people who are getting screwed over by a lack of freedom. And the raisin story is one example of that. And an interesting example of what people are doing with their technology is one we did a couple of years ago about a guy who lives in upstate New York. He's a retired computer programmer, computer engineer. And he took the uh, local newspaper and he digitized its entire archive going back over 100 years. And he also did this for a couple of uh, New York City newspapers and because he was interested in it. And he just he digitized it all in his spare time as a hobby. He's a amateur you know, archivist. And he did it at a time when the Brooklyn Public Library, he did more of the Brooklyn Eagle, a newspaper, a daily newspaper that Walt Whitman wrote for, and Hart Crane, I mean, these great American poets back in the day. He digitized it more quickly than the Brooklyn Library did, which had, you know, millions of dollars in government grants to do exactly that. So that's kind of like, that's a story like, well, that's pretty cool. Or, we, you know, we talk to people, uh, you know, entrepreneurs who are using uh, you talked about the breakdown of neighborhoods. These were guys who were um, uh, uh, one entrepreneur who uh, flo- uh, who uses the internet to bring local buyers in, into um, commerce with uh, local florists. So instead of using one eight hundred flowers uh, or something like that, which is a great service, so you can send flowers anywhere around the country. Mm-hmm. This also allows you to actually find people locally who are doing things that are specific to your region. You know, so th- so we we tell both sides of the story, like right. the successes or what people are doing with freedom, as well as you know, how people are getting screwed, but they, you know, they, they're journalists, you know, we do video journalism first and foremost, and we do print journalism first and foremost and online journalism. So we're constantly looking for stories. Uh, and then we research them. We, we find out which ones pan out, and which ones don't. Uh, you look for interesting characters and, um, you know, I guess it's hard to say the technology has changed. I've been, I've been at reason for 21 years I'd been a journalist before that. And when I showed up at Reason, I started in October or thereabouts of 1993, we were still pasting up the magazine. Uh, and so anybody who worked for a student publication or something, you know, the idea of paste up, like where you would print out the text on a special type of paper, cut it out, and then have somebody actually glue it or wax it mm-hmm. to, you know, stick it to a board which would then be sent to a printer who would take a, a high-res photo of it, and that would be the printing plate. We were still doing that when I started at Reason, and now everybody knows. You know, nobody you, – you don't do that anymore, and that's a, one of the ways that technology has really changed the game uh, for print, for online, for video, because, mm-hmm. you know, we're using cameras now. We actually did a pretty good story about um, a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago about how the first – small camera that was actually able to be purchased by like an individual, you know, that was maybe $5,000 instead of $50,000. That radically changes what stories matter and how they get told. You know, one of the things that we're particularly interested in is uh, the ways in which, uh, you know, cell phones and ubiquitous cameras have allowed people to regulate the police and law enforcement and, you know, in all sorts of ways that were unforeseen. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you can remember back to the Rodney King beating, which is kind of one of the watershed moments in American culture of the past 50 years. And it happened because a guy had bought a video camera as a kind of, you know, 
uh, toy, an expensive toy for himself. Mm-hmm. He was fiddling with it when he happened to capture the LAPD beating Rodney King. And that was one of the first moments where it wasn't just an eyewitness saying, hey, I saw a bunch of cops beating people up. But it was like you had footage, not perfect footage. You know, it was grainy. It, you know, context always matters and all of that. But that ushered in an age now. And now everybody who has a, you know, a $10 cell phone or maybe a cell phone you get for free when you sign up for two years with Verizon or, you know, whoever, you we've seen this again and again. I, I, ju- I was just watching, I posted a, uh, something to Reason's blog about this, about, you know, we have footage of, the, of a guy, of a blogger being caned in Saudi Arabia because somebody used their cell phone to take pictures of that and a woman being beheaded by, you know, the, you know, our allies in Saudi Arabia. And that is, you know, that is huge and powerful. It also helps, you know, I mean, you know, and it's, it's, you know, this is how technology radically alters how we go about our lives. You know, the police and authorities can watch us more often because there are surveillance cameras everywhere, but private business owners can feel safer in their stores when there's, they run a surveillance camera and private citizens can feel better because, and we've all seen these, these are electrifying on YouTube when, you know, suddenly, uh, you know, there are a series of internal border, uh, border patrol checkpoints within a hundred miles of borders where they just stop everybody for no reason. They have no, you know, and they say, Hey, we, uh, we're asking, are you a, uh, an American citizen? And you see people talking back to them and capturing it on their cameras it's a radical leveler of power. And that's really, in a lot of ways, ultimately the big thing about reason. And the thing that I'm most excited about is that over, certainly over the past 50 years and even over the past 500 years, what we've seen is power is going, you know, power is no longer in a pyramid. It's, it's leaching out, it's spreading out in all sorts of ways. And technology drives a lot of that where suddenly, you know, somebody like Edward Snowden, you know, he gets a job, you know, he's at work for the NSA for 15 minutes and he's able to take a bunch of documents and, you know, whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, I happen to think Snowden, you know, the revelations are really powerful and important, but suddenly, you know, he has laid bare the internal, you know, workings of, of the, the world's only superpower. That's, that's an amazing moment in history to be living through and different versions of that, less dramatic versions of that pepper our lives and make it better. Something that I, I really like, to your point, that that your that reason focuses on is as whistleblowers become more and more prevalent and, and have more and more tools at, at their disposal, establishment yeah. is is trying to crush them out, ruin their character, defame mm-hmm. their integrity. I really like how reason presents their, the, the whistleblower's viewpoints. And yeah, we it, talked to um, a guy who uh, in the kind of uh, surveillance community is known as uh, kind of Edward Snowden 1.0. It's a guy named William Binney who is a lifelong, uh, he was a Vietnam vet who then signed up for the National Security Agency, and he was a 30-plus a year veteran at the NSA. And he and a couple of his colleagues, um, they did what Snowden, what detractors of Snowden say Snowden should have done, which is they went through the official channels. Like when they they found out that the NSA was collecting in contravention to the not just the Constitution, but what they were saying to the public, including Congress, they said, "Look, we found out that the NSA is collecting huge amounts of data." on American citizens in contravention of, of existing laws and known practice. They went to Congress, uh, which did exactly nothing with it, except a couple of years after they had turned over their material and talked to congressmen. Each of them were raided by the FBI on kind of BS charges and had their lives massively disrupted. Um, you know, so, you know, and, and Benny is a fascinating character. This guy is a huge patriot who spent his entire life, I mean, he volunteered as a kid, for the Vietnam War because he he believed that America was, you know, the best country in the world and it was doing the right thing there. And then he served in, in intelligence. He's not a fan of Snowden per se. He thinks that Snowden has released materials that, you know, that should not be released to the general public. But he also believes that he's doing the right thing. And he's proof positive that you can't whistleblow from within the system. That's mm-hmm. like a pipe dream. And you can see this in, you know, Barack Obama, you know, came in saying he was going to, you know, be the, run the most transparent administration and, and act in, in, in the day, light of day 
in everything he did. And it turned out he was lying about that. He continued virtually all of the worst excesses of the Bush administration overreach in terms of surveillance, as well as, um, you know, taking uh, a supposed um, uh, uh, enemy noncombatants. And like, if the U.S. wasn't, you know, kidnapping them and then torturing them, they would outsource it to a friendly government or whatever. And, you know, it was revealed not through Snowden, but through the New York Times that Obama was maintaining a kill list where Bush said, I had the right you know, and people were aghast that they should have been that I have a right to, a, you know, to take into captivity any American, anybody I think is hurt, going to hurt America, whether they're an American citizen or not. Obama took that a step further and said, I have the right to unilaterally decide who I might kill, even if they're an American citizen. And that only came out because of whistleblowers. And now Barack Obama is interested in saying, yeah, we should have a conversation about this, a dialogue about this. He spent his entire time right up until the moment until he was revealed to be doing this, saying like, no, I'm not going to talk about this. So yeah, there's, you know, and, and again, this is not that all whistleblowers are good. It's also true that a lot of times people leak fake documents or they don't know what they're doing. And what we try to do at Reason with all of this stuff is, you know, we're, we're every, a hum, to be a, a, a human being is to, you know, is to basically have a brain that is soaking in a, a kind of a marinade of, of emotion. So, you know, our, the name of the magazine is Reason. We try to be rational. We try to look at things clearly and use logic. We recognize there are limits to that. But when it comes to something, you know, you can see it predictably. Snowden is this. Snowden is that. Snowden had a girlfriend who was an exotic dancer. How can you take anything he says seriously? <laughs> None of that matters. You know, the documents are what matter. And you always know something's fishy when, you know, somebody has proof in front of you and they're saying, oh, don't look at the proof. Look at the guy who brought it to you. He's got a club foot. Or, you know, he's got a dodgy pass. And it's true, you, you know, you have to make sure the documents are legitimate, but nobody's questioning that. You know, mm -hmm. you haven't heard the NSA say, no, these are lies. Uh, and, and that goes for a lot of things about public policy. You know, another thing that libertarians like to do and reason certainly likes to do is that a lot of the times when it comes to public policy, we focus on the intentions of people rather than the effects of of the policy. And so, you know, with the drug war, for instance, reason is in favor of legalizing all drugs and then figuring out ways to deal with, uh, you know, for, uh, on the idea that once you did that, if you legalize drugs, a lot of the, the crime and violence that goes along with any kind of black market in anything, whether it's, you know, butter and nylons during World War II or drugs, you know, pot today, a lot of that violence goes away because you, you can enforce contracts or bad behavior through court, court battles rather than using guns. But, you know, part of, uh, you know, the intentions of the drug war, maybe, you know, maybe they're good. Like people say, you know what, a lot of people get screwed up on, on heroin or cocaine or something, and we want to avoid that. The intention may be good, but the, you know, the reality of the policy is that it has created criminals out of, you know, 35% of black men, of young black men. It has intensified every social harm it was supposed to alleviate. Mm -hmm. And you got to look at what happens. You know, it's the same thing with school funding. You hear, you know, per pupil funding in real terms, inflation adjusted dollars since the early 70s has gone up far more than two times per pupil. But when you look at the results of graduating seniors, they're exactly where they were in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. So whatever the intention is, let's get more money to the system and that'll fix everything. That intention is not working. The effect is not working. So we got to try something else. And that's always an important thing to do is not to, not simply to look at intentions, but look at effects when, when you're talking about public policy or social policy. So that's it for episode 19, part one interview with Nick Gillespie from Reason.com and ReasonDTV. I apologize for the technical glitch we had at about the 32, 33 minute mark. In the next part of the episode, we will be talking about additional conversations of public policy and talking about journalism and more about Reason. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.